quantum gravity is important for understanding uh, certain processes in the universe, um, in particular uh, in, in very extreme conditions. So, for example, what happens in the interior of black holes where the universe inside the black hole collapses, or what happens at the beginning, very beginning of the Big Bang, perhaps even before inflation, when you had this initial uh, cosmological singularity or some region. Singularity means that we don't understand it using the Einstein's theory of gravity. So we need this. We think that if we had the quantum version of the theory, then it would be uh, non-singular. It would be something that we could understand. So in fact, this, this problem of the beginning of the Big Bang is the most uh, interesting problem that quantum gravity could address. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 177. And this episode is with Juan Maldacena, who is one of the biggest, figuratively the biggest and most influential figures in theoretical physics today. And he's also the Carl P. Feinberg Professor in the School of Natural Sciences at the Institute for Advanced Study. So Juan is mainly focused on quantum gravity and string theory in particular, which is the majority of what <clears throat> we discuss in this episode. The first quarter, I'd say, is a warm-up. Uh, and it's a warm-up for a lengthy discussion of his paper, The Large N Limit of Superconformal Field Theories and Supergravity. And it has about 24,000 citations, which is, I believe, or which makes it, uh, though I could be wrong, the most cited paper in high energy physics of all time. And the rough gist of this paper, which is an example of the holographic principle, is that a theory of quantum gravity in an anti-de-sitter space has a parallel description, or it can be translated into a conformal field theory that describes the physics in a space of one less dimension on the boundary of that bulk space. And then uh, maybe to put that a bit more simply, I hope, uh, and extrapolating from the conjecture to our universe, so assuming that it holds here, uh, that it holds there too, even since it's a, it's a conjecture, and that our universe is, or does admit of a string theoretic description, then the theory that describes everything in the bulk of our universe, so you, me, the Milky Way, and so on, would be translatable into a conformal field theory that describes processes occurring on the boundary of our universe. And then maybe translating it again into another example, uh, though it's, it's no longer the same ADS-CFT correspondence, uh, but some results regarding black holes that I discussed with Eric Verlind in episode 159, everything happening on the inside of a black hole can be read off of its boundary. And of course, we get into a lot more depth than this and hopefully break it down into much more digestible, easily digestible parts and motivate why this is so interesting and also clear up any mistakes that I may have just made. But it's a terrific episode. Juan, it goes without saying, is amazing. And now, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Juan.
we don't need to get into this right now, but because string or M theory, it remains controversial among physicists. I always find it fascinating to hear why some physicists gravitate toward it when others don't. And over the past couple of decades, you've been one of the central figures in the area. So I can't help but ask just what sorts of considerations, I mean, whether they're philosophical, mathematical, physical, or otherwise, led you to gravitate toward it already when you were in graduate school? Well, I should say that before we talk about string theory, let's try to explain the problem that it tries to solve. So it's um, the, the, the problem is to understand the quantum mechanics of uh, space-time. So Einstein's theory of gravity consists of the idea that space-time is uh, curved and dynamical. It can change and so on. But it's a classical theory. So in the sense of classical mechanics, it's a classical, let's say, field theory. Um, on the other hand, we know that matter at the short distances is described by quantum mechanics, a new type of law. And other classical field theories, such as uh, electromagnetism, that describes the electromagnetic field, um, are really fundamental, they're changed by quantum mechanics and are, um, and, and that's important. I mean, we, we describe interactions of matter with light using this quantum theory. So the question is, um, is gravity also quantized in this, in a similar way? Um, and uh, and what, what are the formulas that describe uh, this new quantum theory? Uh, now, let me, say why we care about this problem, uh, why, why we care about the quantum theory of gravity. Um, now, for, for most uh, practical purposes, we don't care. So if you are interested in building a better iPhone or you are interested in some very practical technology, it's going to be totally useless. And the reason is that gravity, uh, gravitational coupling is very small and uh, that this makes this quantum effects very small. However, quantum gravity is important for understanding uh, certain processes in the universe, um, in particular uh, in, in very extreme conditions. So for example, what happens in the interior of black holes where the universe inside the black hole collapses, or what happens at the beginning, very beginning of the Big Bang, perhaps even before inflation, when you had this initial uh, cosmological singularity or some region. Singularity means that we don't understand it using the Einstein theory of gravity. So we need this. We think that if we had the quantum version of the theory, then it would be uh, non-singular. It would be something that we could understand. So in fact, this, this problem of the beginning of the Big Bang is the most uh, interesting problem that quantum gravity could address. Um, um, other problems, as I said, were problems involving black holes. Um, so that's that's the context. That's why we want a theory of quantum gravity. Um, now, theories like electromagnetism have been quantized, uh, or the quantum theory was developed using a certain type of technique. Um, and uh, the same type of, of techniques uh, do not quite work for gravity. Um, for, yeah. Um, and so that's... So that's uh, some background. Uh, that, that's so I gave you why we, when we care about this theory and 
Second, um, why the simplest approach doesn't work. I mean, the simplest approach uh, works for something. So in some approximation, it does work and it predicts some interesting things. For example, that uh, if you have uh, the theory of inflation, which says that you have some very rapid expansion at the beginning of the universe, then we should, quantum effects should produce gravity waves. So if we, uh, these are, people are trying to look for them in mm -hmm. mainly through the- I'm talking the to Brian Keating tomorrow about this actually. Ah, wonderful. Yeah. So, so it, it's something that could be detected at any time, any time. I mean, it, it, there was a claim of detection uh, a few years ago. Unfortunately, it was incorrect, but um, that, that, yeah, by bicep. And, and that, that kind of shows you that they could be detected at any time. And if they are detected, then it would be a real smoking gun of uh, quantum gravity that gravitational fields should be quantized. I mean, you are, we are assuming the theory of inflation, but yeah, that, um, and, and for that, you don't need a string theory or any fancy theory. So it's just the simplest uh, quantization is fine. So the, the, the place where you need it is when you try to get something a little more precise or in more extreme conditions. So inflation uh, happens, uh, the, the, the expansion of the universe is rapid, but it's not that rapid compared to what we call the Planck scale, which is the scale at which quantum gravity effects are very important. Um, so if we want to somehow go earlier than inflation, then we would need the theory of quantum gravity and we would need some better theory. Now, uh, string theory is a, is a theory that um, had a long history and it originated originally as a theory of the strong interactions and then people, and it was originally based on the idea that instead of particles, we'd consider strings. That's where the name comes from. And this theory was developed, and over the years, then people uh, realized, uh, Yonea and Schwartz uh, realized that it could be used to describe gravi gravity, quantum gravity. Um, and when you when when you use it for that purpose, it, it leads to well-defined formulas, and it doesn't have the problems that uh, the standard techniques that were used to construct gravity. Uh, yeah, so you don't have those problems. So at, at the very least, I think uh, you should think of string theory as a kind of toy model for quantum gravity. So it's a particular version of quantum gravity that seems to be well-defined, um, where you could compute uh, corrections to any order and defines a kind of what we call a perturbation theory, similar to how we define, let's say, el quantum electrodynamics, or so the theory that describes the interactions of light with quantum light with quantum matter. Um, but it's a little more complicated, and it has some uh, some various features, and it uh, put put some constraints on the solution. So the simplest uh, flat space uh, space time needs to have a specific number of dimensions, let's say ten dimensions. Um, so it, it's a very constrained structure, let's say, very fairly constrained, and and. The, the fact that it's well-defined then allows you to somehow study within this theory various uh, questions relevant to quantum gravity. Um, in particular, it, it was partic was useful for understanding aspects of black holes. Um, and uh, now you might ask, well, so let, let me say what, what string theory has done and what it hasn't done. So it has... Um, provided some nice explanation for quantum aspects of black holes. Uh, I'll, I'll get more into that later. Um, and something that it has not done yet is to understand the beginning of the Big Bang, for example, what cosmology would look like in string theory. So we, 
it's a complicated theory. We don't understand it completely. We understand some aspects of it. Um, and at the very least, it's a toy model. There might be other theories of quantum gravity that are um, th that exist, uh, make mathematical sense. But the theory that makes most mathematical sense so far is string theory. So no other theory uh, on the market sort of comes close to it. Um, but yeah, th there might be other theories, and maybe we might discover them. And uh, one of the things that has happened is that um, there were historically uh, other approaches to quantum gravity that people had, for example, 11 dimensional supergravity. And um, this was thought to be different from string theory and unrelated, and some people said it was wrong or so on. Um, but then now we understand that it's kind of part of the same structure. That uh, some theory that reduces to super 11 dimensions super so it might so historically it has happened that things that were not considered string theory are now considered string theory so <laughs> um, I think maybe um, so we, we've expanded the, these horizons and maybe we'll expand them more in the future as we understand that other ideas perhaps are uh, we, we find the right place for for other ideas uh, as limits of uh, various kinds. Um, so, so mostly people who who are called, let's say, string theorists, are people who are interested in this problem of the quantum mechanics of gravity. So, gravity and quantum mechanics, space-time and quantum mechanics. And um, yeah, so that's roughly what it is. Um, what it is, both from the intellectual point of view and also from the sociological point of view. So, um, someone who works on string theory, let's say, like myself, for example, I don't all the time work on the traditional string theory of the 80s. We might work on different toy models that are interesting for quantum gravity. And for example, in the past few years, uh, we've been thinking about something called some model that was inspired by some problems in condensed matter physics. And as far as we know, it's not directly connected to the string theory, but it has some features in common and, uh, and has been very useful. So, mm -hmm. well, that was a, a terrific introduction. And just though to reiterate, recapitulate, so I should understand that your interest in string theory stems from maybe two basic considerations. One's a, a conviction that quantizing gravity, particularly for understanding the Big Bang, is the most important goal of theoretical physics right now. And then second, that string theory is a particularly useful way of doing this, especially, as you mentioned, for studying black holes, though it hasn't quite gotten to the Big Bang yet. And at this point, it's the best for these things mathematically, though, as you mentioned, other theories might arise. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's the most important goal in particle physics. In physics, uh, that physics is very broad. It has many interesting goals. There are many interesting problems uh, in physics. Uh, this is just one uh, one question in physics that is interesting. Uh, I, I find it interesting, but I mean, there are, of course, many other interesting questions. Um, another another point that I, I didn't emphasize, but let's say it was emphasized a lot in the 80s and 90s, is that we, um, from uh, string theory, from some ten, the 10-dimensional theory, uh, if we put it on some special six-dimensional manifolds, we could get physics similar to that in our own real world. So it has the uh, the ability perhaps to um, incorporate the rest of physics, the, the standard model in particular. Um, 
And uh, there are many ways of doing this. So you can get the standard model or you could get many other possibilities. And uh, that might be another another avenue in which through which you can connect uh, string theory to, to reality. By, um, so, so far, we, we haven't connected it because mainly the main problem was in, in the beginning, people thought that there would be a small number of possibilities and one of them would be the standard model. But now they realize that there are uh, many, uh, many, many possibilities. So the number is so big that, uh, yeah, we could perhaps get the standard model, but we, we, we don't have a concrete prediction. Um, well, before we get to the connections between string theory and the standard model, one thing that I really feel that I, I need to ask you about is the Institute for Advanced Study, because you're actually the, the first person I've spoken to on the show who's at the IS out of IAS out of about uh, 200 episodes. And I'm sure that many of our listeners might not actually be familiar with it, but you did your PhD at Princeton and then you were a professor at Harvard, both, both of which are tremendous places to do physics. So what was it about the IAS that made it so alluring as your ultimate home for physics? Um, well, the IAS is a small uh, research institute focused uh, mainly on research. Uh, there are students that do PhDs and there are um, there are students that come from Princeton University. Uh, we have a wonderful group of postdocs uh, doing research. So, yeah, it's a great research environment. And there are also other people working in similar fields. Uh, Nati Cyber, Edward Witt, and Nimar Kanihamed. So uh, it's, it's a wonderful environment. And that's what made me come here. But of course, Harvard is also wonderful. And there are many other wonderful places. Mm-hmm. Well, I spoke a bit about this with your colleague in the Netherlands, Eric Verlind, uh, and also Andy Strominger. But toward exploring the ADS-CFT correspondence, which is what I hope to get to in this conversation, and which I understand is among the most important results in string theory, I'd like to begin by talking about holography or the holographic principle. And I know that this was its historical origin, but I, I think you agree that maybe discussing black holes and Bekenstein-Hawking radiation is maybe the, the best way to introduce the concept? Right, right. So the in, in the 70s, uh, Bekenstein proposed that black holes have some entropy. And then Hawking discovered that black holes have a temperature. So... And, and they realized, so, and together with other researchers, they realized that black holes obey, seem to obey the laws of thermodynamics. So it's a bit mysterious that this object that started out as some geometry of space-time unique geometry now behaves like a thermal object. And um, then uh, there was a question that was raised, which was, uh, well, where, where are the microstates of the black holes? So what, what, uh, what, what, what do these formulas mean? So what the formulas mean taken sort of face value is that the black hole can be viewed from the outside as a quantum system. So it's some system that has a finite entropy, so finite number of states. Um, and you can make the hypothesis that it evolves according to some ordinary quantum mechanical laws, though they are not, though these properties are not manifest from the gravity picture. From the gravity picture, all you can calculate is the entropy. Um, and um, so there was the idea that it, it, 
a better understanding of gravity would lead to an understanding of what the black hole, I mean, what, what these degrees of freedom of a black hole are, uh, or a full description of a black hole. Um, now, this picture that I just told you um, is something that you might naively get from uh, these formulas of thermodynamics, uh, but it was not obvious, and in particular, uh, people like Stephen Hawking disagree with this picture. So they were proposing that black holes actually destroy information, so they don't behave like an ordinary quantum mechanical object, but um, they fundamentally lose the information, at least for from the point of view of an observer who stays outside the black hole. Uh, this is sometimes called the information problem. And so then... Um, since uh, string theory is a theory of quantum gravity, you can try to analyze this problem in uh, string theory. Um, and um, it, it, the, the, the main technical breakthrough that made this possible was a discovery by Joe Polchinski of something called D-brains. I will not get into uh, the details of what they are, but they are some other objects that string theory has. So string theory has these strings, but then it has these other objects. And they have... Um, two very important properties. One is that they are on the verge of becoming black holes. So they are, if, if you just take one or two of them, they behave like a very fundamental object, which is a very precise description. But if you take many of them, they start curving space and they start to behave more and more like black holes. Um, so that's one point. And the second point is that, um, well, uh, Wolchensky gave a very precise uh, description of uh, the excitations of these objects. So how they interact uh, among each other and, uh, and with the fields outside. And so there are precise mathematical formulas that tell, tell us how this happens. So roughly speaking, what happens is that um, on these objects, uh, the excitations are described by certain um, theories that are similar to the theories that describe elementary particles, or in particular, the strong interactions. Um, but what's important for this is that they they follow well-defined quantum mechanical rules. Um, and so with this difference, uh, you could define quite easily as so-called extremal black holes. So they, the simplest low energy system, if you take this difference at low energies, they have uh, many properties in common and you can view them in some limits as uh, black holes. So extremal black holes are black holes that carry some charge. And um, so such black holes have a mass which is bigger than the charge. And as you lower the mass, the temperature, the Hawking temperature becomes smaller and smaller. And when the mass is equal to the charge, they become a very cold object. So, uh, but with still large entropy. And um, this large entropy was first uh, derived and reproduced by uh, Strominger and Buffa using precisely these rules of the brains. And then after that, um, a bunch of us started um, trying to understand what happens when the temperature is not exactly zero, so it's a little bit above zero. Um, so there, uh, you can have some more non-trivial dynamics. Uh, you can throw things into the black hole. The black hole can evaporate and so on. Um, and uh, the, the, the idea is that what happens with these black holes is that um, they have a geometry where, which is flat space very far away. And then as you approach the black hole, they develop a long kind of throat or region where the, um, 
where the gravitational potential becomes smaller and smaller. Um, and um, if you look at from the outside, those excitations look like they have lower and lower energy. And so it's a bit like a big well, big gravitational well. And at the bottom of the well, you have the horizon, the black hole. Um, and um, so the, the this ADS-CFT correspondence came by saying that um, this this region of the well itself, uh, plus the horizon and so on, can be described by uh, this theories that describe deep brains at low energies that were standard quantum field theories or, or theories of interacting particles. Um, um, the geometry of these uh, throats uh, is something called anti-de-sitter space. So it's a negatively curved space um, that has, it's very symmetric. It's, it's one of the simplest uh, negatively curved spaces you could have. Um, and um, so that that's where sometimes it's called ADS. Uh, um, the the anti came from the fact that the actual space that the, the sitter was a person who considered the an expanding universe, and that um, that's called the sitter space. It has positive cosmological constant. It has negative cosmological constant. That's where the word anti comes from. It's trying to explain the name of the space. But anyway, so it's some simple negatively curved space. Um, and so the idea is that the physics in this space is the same as uh, the theory of interacting quantum particles without gravity. So it translates a problem with gravity to a problem without gravity. Um, and um, in particular, in the problem with gravity, you could have a black hole. Um, and then you can describe that black hole from this theory without gravity, and the black hole becomes just an ordinary thermal state, uh, thermal system in this theory. Um, so this allows you in principle, so, if, if you, so it's a conjecture uh, that these two things are equal. Um, it's a conjecture that passes many tests, and there are many, there's a lot of evidence for the conjecture. but. If you assume this conjecture, then uh, you would have a complete description of this of these black holes. Um, so the the cases that are best understood are cases with lots of symmetries uh, that come from string theory, so in higher dimensions and um, very very idealized cases. Mm -hmm. Well, that was a great overview, and I'd, I'd really like to get into many of the things you just described in more detail. And I'd like to start with the first question that you raised, which is where are the microstates in a black hole? And one thing that I want to better understand with regard to black holes is just because the information they contain can be read off as a sort of description from the event horizon, does this mean that the event horizon is all there really is? Because that's the sense I've gotten from some sources that I've read. And if I'm not mistaken, if my memory is not mistaken, uh, Eric Verlin told me that he doesn't really even think about the singularity at the core of a black hole at all, which is where at least we uninitiated into string theory conceive of the information within a black hole residing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think um, people sometimes say that the information is at the horizon because the entropy is proportional to the area of the horizon. Um, but we don't have any co uh, very concrete mathematical theory where that is actually realized. Um, 
Um, so in, in ADS-EFT, what happens is that you have a black hole with its horizon, and it's, a, it's, it's within some, some bigger space. So there's some space that continues. And what ADS-EFT tells you is it replaces that the black hole and, this, and the whole space all the way to very large uh, distance by an alternative theory where, um, that lives basically on the boundary in a sphere very far away. Um, that contains interacting particles, and the black hole is some thermal state in uh, in that theory. So that's what we know with precise uh, mathematical description. In that description, you cannot say that the degrees of freedom were at the horizon. In fact, you would also say they are at infinity. Uh, they are very far away. Um, so in that sense, the description is very non-local, sometimes also called holographic. Well, it's holographic where it, you're looking at it from very far away and you're describing this, you know, three-dimensional space in terms of a theory that lives in the two-dimensional sphere far away. Um, yeah, but maybe there is in the future people will understand the description where the horizon, the, the, you can localize the black hole degrees of freedom at the horizon, but we don't have it yet. Um, so, yeah, so that's uh, one point. The second point is that when we talk about these degrees of freedom, they are the degrees of freedom that describe the, the black hole as seen from the outside. Right? Um, now, you might be an observer that's falling into the black hole, right? So if you are falling into the black hole, uh, general relativity predicts that you cross the horizon, you don't feel anything partic any, anything special at the horizon, and that you will then eventually uh, get into the singularity. And maybe you'll die at the singularity. And we don't know exactly. So, so when we get to the singularity, the current uh, techniques we have, including the ones from string theory, don't tell us exactly what will happen. And uh, so that's something that is currently not understood. That's another question we don't understand in string theory. So through this string theory model, through holography, ADS-CFT, we can describe very nicely black holes as seen from the outside. But, um, but we haven't succeeded yet in understanding the, the black hole interior. There are various ideas people are pursuing and hopefully it will be understood. Uh, it, it, I think it's very important to understand the interior because the interior is um, a region with, that looks a bit like a mini, it looks like a big crunch. So it's a region, the, the space-time inside the black hole sort of collapses into singularity. And so if we understood well the interior and this, this singularity in the future, we uh, could perhaps uh, time reverse that and understand the singularity in the beginning of the Big Bang. So mm -hmm. the right. question, th questions are related somehow. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, one, one thing that I, I didn't really understand about Eric's views was that my understanding was the singularity at the center of the black hole is so important because that is precisely where the two theories um, general relativity and, and quantum field theory break down because space in in general relativity is smooth, but it becomes jittery and chaotic at that level. Yes, no, that that's correct. And uh, I, I think uh, we, we don't have an answer to this question. So string theory gives us answers to some questions, but we, we haven't understood this, this particular question. So you, you should view it as a theory under construction. There are many questions that we don't know how to understand, how to solve. And this is just, a, I guess, a, a terminological curiosity, but 
do you prefer not to use the word hologram or holography or the holographic principle? No, yeah, we can we can use it. So the uh, the yeah, so the this the, this idea comes uh, basically back to the Bekenstein formula, uh, which uh, says that the en entropy of a black hole is proportional to the area rather than to the volume. And then this led to the idea that um, if you have a region of space, the maximal entropy you can fit in should be proportional to the area, not not to the volume, because otherwise, when we collapse it to, if we imagine collapsing it to a black hole, we would not obey the law, the second law of thermodynamics. And so this uh, led to the idea, Tofton Saskind, of thinking that uh, you should have this kind of dimensional reduction in gravity that you have. Uh, three-dimensional theory, three space dimensions, but if you take a sphere far away, you should be able to describe it in terms of, or, or any sphere, um, you should be able to describe it in terms of a theory that uh, has a number of degrees of freedom, which is at most the area of the sphere. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's that's the idea of holography. Um, the ADS-CFT correspondence is uh, a realization of this idea when you put that sphere very, very far away. Um, people have uh, made attempts of bringing the sphere not far away, but at more finite locations. And uh, there are some ideas in that direction, but we don't have a precise mathematical um, description of that, that situation where you bring the sphere yeah. finite location. The reason that I asked about the, the term hologram or holographies and i couldn't tell if you preferred not to use it and i thought that maybe this would be because be because it connotes at least with some physicists that the and lay people that the bulk of the universe or the black hole is in a sense illusory and what really exists is this bounding surface and maybe that was something that you resisted um no i i I, I think that the two descriptions should be viewed as equivalent or okay. uh, sometimes it's called the duality, that the two are uh, alternative descriptions, I think. Uh, now, presently we understand better, so in this situation of ADSFT, we, we presently understand better the boundary theory. So this theory far away, we, we think it's completely well-defined. and we, we could do arbitrarily com arbitrary computations, at least in principle. Um, but the bulk theory, we... Uh, we, we don't understand it as uh, as well um, as well as we understand the boundary theory, um, and so some that led. So some some people want to say that um, well, or people often say that the the space time in the bulk is immersion. It's some kind of um, it's uh, by immersion I mean it's a property that would be true when you have a, a boundary theory with many degrees of freedom, but not when you have a small number of degrees of freedom. Um, so similar to how, um, let's say, certain properties of matter are immersion. So if we talk about, um, let's say, the color of a piece of metal, uh, that that's a property of uh, many atoms. Uh, but if you take just a single atom of iron, we, cannot, we will not have the same color, if you wish. Um, um, so that 
in, in this sense, there are many properties of, of physics of ordinary materials that depend on the fact of have depend on having many many atoms. So, for example, water can be a liquid or a gas. And, okay, that those are two two configurations um, whose which are distinct uh, when you have many many atoms. But if you had one atom, you couldn't or one molecule of water, you couldn't tell whether it's one or the other. So there is the idea that um, uh, space time is like this only emerges when you have many. I, I think I, I think well, I think the idea is correct, but um, in the in the sense that if you want a classical space time that uh, looks like what we have in the space time around it around us, then it's emerging in that sense. But the idea is that if you had a small number of particles, perhaps you would have a very quantum mechanical space time. And so if you are wishing to say that you are tolerating a quantum, me very quantum mechanical space time, as I think we should in a theory of quantum gravity, then um, I think it is possible that we have a precise equivalence. But but the, the problem is the bulk theory is not uh, as well defined as the boundary theory. So, so far, if someone wants to say that um, the bulk theory only makes sense in when we have a large number of particles on the boundary, then uh, it, uh, yeah, we can contradict that person. Oh. Yeah, maybe 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 I should explain. There is a concept I referred to here that I didn't uh, fully explain. So. The, the idea is that these theories that live at the boundary consist of uh, particles, um, and they are similar to the theories of particles that we use for nature, for describing nature, um, except that there are kind of many different types of particles. So there is some number n of particles, that uh, particle types that is very large. They're, they're somewhat similar to the theory of strong interactions. So in the theory of strong interactions um, is, uh, it's a theory similar to the theory of uh, both, both electromagnetism and weak interactions, but um, the the particles have a property which is called color. Um, this number, uh, so this number of different types of color is three in the case of uh, of the theory of strong interactions. Um, and so, for example, there are three types of quarks and so on. Uh, and uh, in these theories that live at the boundary, you would have you would need this number is similar. There is a similar number, but it should be very very large. Uh, so, uh, as large as the universe is in Planck units. So, for example, if you wanted to describe a universe that has the size of our universe, but let's say we had negative cosmological constant instead of positive, but with the same magnitude, then uh, the number you would need is ten to the hundred and twenty. So, it's a very large. Number. Yeah. Well, I'd like to get back to conformal field theory and then anti-de-sitter space in a few minutes. But right now, returning to what you said about the equivalence of the bulk and boundary uh, theories and descriptions and this duality here, restricting ourselves to black holes, you said that, I mean, the region of the well can be explained uh, via a description of, I think, low energy D brains on the boundary. And that they're these are equivalent, but because the latter is lower dimensional and quantum mechanical and mathematically more tame, it's just easier and perhaps more useful to use this version for some reason because they're they're intertranslatable. But one is not fundamental. That, that's right. That's right. It's uh, it, it's it's more useful for questions about 
black holes and whether black holes preserve information or not. That That's one uh, application where the boundary description is more useful. There are other questions for which the bulk description is more useful. So, um, and that's a direction that's also been explored a lot. Um, and uh, so for that, I need to say one more thing about this boundary theory, which is that uh, the particles that live in this boundary theory are very strongly interacting. So they interact very, very much with each other. Um, and this makes uh, this boundary theory is hard to analyze. Um, but um, the, the bulk theory is somehow simpler to analyze, at least for certain problems. Like, let's say we don't consider problems involving black holes, but other problems involving gravity waves, or even with, with black holes, the... Um, how gravity waves fall into a black hole and this type of questions. Um, so those are questions we can easily answer using the Einstein equations. So the, 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 the bulk uh, gravity description. And so, so then this ADS-CFT correspondence translate, uh, translates a difficult problem in the boundary theory to a simple problem in the bulk theory. So that's uh, using it, using this equivalence in a different direction. To learn there, what you're doing is you're using gravity to learn about strongly interacting theories, um, and uh, you can use this to model systems in either nuclear physics or condensed matter physics, and so on. Well, moving back to some more fundamental questions, uh, because I, I mentioned before, I mean our listeners are all smart and curious, but they're not all trained physicists. So I think we should devote just a, a bit more time discussing anti-de-sitter space on the one hand, and then conformal field theories on the other. And this is very basic, but what is the, the difference between positive and negative curvature of space? Right, right. Um, well, let's start with flat space. So flat space is uh, perhaps most intuitive because our universe around us can be approximated at least by flat space. Um, then uh, when we have a positive curvature space-time, um, including time, uh, that, that describes an expanding universe, so some universe with constant expansion rate. Um, our universe uh, is now kind of similar to that at very large scales and will become even more and more similar to that simplest uh, uh, constant expanding universe, sometimes called uh, the Sitter space. Um, now, uh, an anti-Sitter space is a universe that um, could be, well, it's time independent, so there is um, it's neither expanding nor contracting, but in some sense it expands when you go along the space direction. So if we go along a spatial direction, the, there is um, an expansion, let's say, of the time. Now, what this means in practice, a more pedestrian way, is to say that there is a kind of gravitational potential. Uh, that. Um, so let me, well, let, let, let me explain this point a little better. Um, so when we talk about curved space-time, um, what we mean in particular is that, for example, the flow of time in different locations could be different. So, for example, um, you are sitting right there and uh, the, the, there is some flow of time, let's say, in your chin, right? And there's, uh, time flows differently in, your in the top of your head. And the reason that that happens is um, that there is, you are sitting in a gravitational field and um, 
And so time flows more slowly around your chin than on the top of your head. Now, this is a very, very tiny little effect that um, the best uh, clocks you could determine. I mean, with an atomic clock, you could the best ones can determine a height difference in of a few millimeters, but it's a real effect. Um, and the difference is uh, huge, though, between where we are now and the event horizon of a black hole, for instance. Exactly. Yeah. So and so the yeah. So if we yeah. So that difference becomes more pronounced the more compact and uh, and heavy the object is. So um, if you uh, at the horizon of a black hole, the difference is, uh, if you wish, infinite. So the it, Time at the horizon, with, with this definition of time, if you are just sitting at the horizon, not falling through the horizon, time is not flowing. And so uh, the, the, the difference is infinite. Um, yeah, so that's, uh, that's what, uh, what happens now. Now let's go back to anti-de-sitter space. So anti-de-sitter space, um, if you, um, this is a very symmetric space, so you could be an observer sitting in anti-de-sitter space. And then uh, what you would feel is that um, there is the, the, the time goes at a certain rate in your in your location, and if you go further out, it goes faster. And so you, you are like in the bottom of a big gravitational potential well. Um, and uh, if you throw any particle out, that particle will go out and then come back into where you are. So it's kind of the opposite of an expanding universe. In the expanding universe, you throw out the particle, it will continue to go out and never come back to you. If you have, um, in, in this space, it, everything kind of concentrates uh, things back to you. And it's similar to a gravitational potential well. Um, the, the, the simplest version is you are, you are sitting at the bottom of this gravitational potential well, and, uh, and, uh, and the, the gravitational potential grows and grows as you go further out without bounds, so that the particle can never escape. So it will always bounce back and, and get back to you. So that's uh, roughly how one could think about it. My understanding though is that when we think about anti-de-sitter space, it's in a and tell, please tell me if I'm wrong here. It's in a vacuum state, so there there isn't mass in it. And would this mean though that at any point, since since it's so maximally symmetric, if at any point uh, you, you, there were a particle and you threw it out, it would just come right back. Yes, that's right. That's right. So if you are, if you are an observer just sitting freely fall, well, sitting freely in that space, uh, if you th throw a particle, it will come back to you. You might have a friend who you can also think about the point of view of that particle that uh, got thrown. It's just, uh, it's falling also freely. And that particle sees that uh, you, you went out, right? You went in some other direction and then you meet again. So the, the description would be similar from the, your point of view and from the particle point of view. And then with regard to conformal field theories, I mean, most of our listeners will be familiar with the term quantum field theory in which um, quantum mechanics, special relativity, and classical field theory merge and subatomic particles like electrons and neutrons are viewed as excitations of underlying quantum fields, but they may not have heard of conformal field theory. So what is the the, the rough relationship between the two terms? Well, a, a, a conformal field theory is a special type of field theory. 
um, that has um, has a, an extra symmetry, a symmetry under scale scalings, that the physics at different scales looks the same. Now, if you had a theory with massive particles, the, the, the mass of the particle sets a scale, and the, the theory would not be invariant under scalings. So it will not be formal. Now, if you took something like the standard model and you went to very, very short distances, the theory is approximately conformal. So um, the so that's an example. So we have these examples in nature. So if you take, for example, the theory of quantum chromodynamics and you study that um, the energies that we studied in the LH Large Hadron Collider, um, it behaves close to conformal field theory. It's not exactly conformal, but it's close. Um, and um, yeah, so, so that, that's roughly a conformal field theory. So it's a theory where you can approximate all particles as being massless. So there is no no mass scale and the interactions have a constant strength um, as constant as for diff as a function of energy. Um, this is not quite the case in the standard model, but this, the, 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 the coupling constants depend a little bit on the energy, uh, but they change slowly with energy. So um, it's close to conformal. Um, and now, the, uh, conformal field theories are easier to analyze because they have more symmetries. Um, they also arise in other physical circumstances. So for example, uh, in systems of that describe um, second order phase transitions at the phase transition point, uh, the statistical physics that the statistical system that describes that uh, situation is uh, conformal invariant or scale invariant. So conformal invariant is a little more than scale invariance, but I won't get into the difference between the two. So let's just for the purposes of this, let's say it's the same as saying that you have scale invariance. So um, scale invariance means that if you have some excitation of some size, you could also have a similar excitation of a bigger size and it would behave in a similar way. Um, so, yeah, so these conformal field theories are sim simple kind of field theories, simple in the sense that they have more symmetries and they arise in variety of uh, physical systems. Second order phase transitions, quantum critical points in condensed matter systems, and uh, let's say in, the, in nature at short distances. Well, now that we have a holography, anti-de-sitter space, and conformal field theories on the board, I, I'm ready to get back to the ADS, the ADS CFT correspondence. And again, maybe just to summarize, make sure we're on the same page. Am I correct then that roughly the conjecture is that the holographic principle can be realized within string theory and more particularly that a string theoretic bulk in anti-de-sitter space is indistinguishable from a conformal field theory in one less dimension on the boundary of that bulk. Yeah, that's correct. Okay, perfect. Then I think the the first question I, I, that comes to mind that I don't think that we have addressed yet re regards this word indistinguishable that I just used. And how is it that entities and or processes in the bulk can be translated to entities and processes in the boundary and vice versa? 
Right. So, so the idea is that um, there is a, a kind of dictionary that given some calculation you do in the boundary, there is some way of doing that calculation in the interior. The dictionary is not obvious and is uh, not complete. So we understand some, some features of the dictionary, but not, not everything. Um, so for example, in certain cases, we expect that the black hole interior should be described from the boundary, but we don't know the precise dictionary. For other things, we know the precise dictionary. So basically, the closer something is to the boundary, the easier it is to describe, um, and the more precise the dictionary is. Um, so yeah, that's uh, roughly the idea. So the, the, the idea is that the, something that is very close, that is closer to the boundary, is described by a very small object in the in this conformal field theory. And as it moves away from the boundary towards the interior, it becomes a bigger and bigger object. Mm. This is totally unrelated, totally unrelated, but I, I'm going to draw it back in a second. But I saw that you have Italian and Argentinian uh, citizenship. Are you from Argentina? Yeah, I'm from Argentina. But you my just have Italian are... ancestors? Yeah, I have Italian ancestors. Okay. <laughs> well, here, here was where I was leading with that. And so... The bulk theory, as we've said, is much less tame than the boundary theory. And I'm going to draw an analogy here to Spanish and English. And so even if, let's say, we're both English speakers and we don't speak Spanish, even if we did have a dictionary that translated from words from English to Spanish, and so we knew what every word in English was, let's say it's the boundary theory, it's the simple one for us. Uh, if we translated it into Spanish and we, we knew the equivalences, we still would have no idea how the Spanish language worked. Is that a rough analogy? to? I mean, we know more about Spanish if Spanish is the bulk theory. But even though we know the equivalences, that doesn't completely mean that we understand the bulk theory. Is So the, is that... A, a yeah, it's something like that, but it's, it's, it would be like having an incomplete dictionary. Let's say you have an incomplete dictionary, some words missing. So um, maybe from context, you can try to figure out what they mean, but there, there would be certain words that you, you, you don't know what they mean. So you, you have to work harder. You have to look at bigger and bigger context in order to figure, figure that out. But that's a very rough analogy. Hmm. Okay. And then one other thing that I, I wanted to dig into at the beginning of our conversation, you mentioned that uh, string theory provides us with some very useful toy models for dealing with quantizing gravity. And in the ADS CFT correspondence, that original paper, my understanding is that you worked in a space called ADS five by S five. And I'm wondering, I mean, this, this is not our universe. It's it's just a model. And I'm wondering why you first, my first question is, I mean, can you explain to us what this space looks like and then why you worked with it for this paper? Um, well, string theory is simplest in 10 dimensions um, or uh, space times that are weakly curved in 10 dimensions. Um, the... I, I consider this space-time because there is a solution of uh, one of the string theories that 
is precisely a five-dimensional sort of anti-theater space times a five-dimensional sphere. So you can think of the five-dimensional sphere as some internal money, external space, and then you have the anti-theater space that we were talking about before. Um, and um, then that, that space uh, has many symmetries, um, and the boundary theory is a four-dimensional theory. Um, and it, it's a four-dimensional theory, which is, is conformal invariant, so it's scale invariant, and um, again, has uh, various other symmetries that we're not going to get into. And it's very similar to the theory that describes quantum chromodynamics. So it's, if you wish, a version of quantum chromodynamics with some particular matter content um, that uh, makes it scale invariant and have these additional symmetries that we're not discussing. And so it's a very symmetric, uh, both, both the bulk and the boundary are very symmetric. And they are the only somehow known theories with those symmetries. Um, so that kind of facilitates one of the arguments for the correspondence is for the duality is that the two sides have exactly the same symmetries. Um, and this, 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 this four-dimensional theory had been studied before as uh, because of uh, these symmetries and various nice properties that it displays, like duality between electric and magnetic charges and so on. Um, and um, yeah, so that well, maybe I should, I'm doubting whether to get into the precise symmetries of this theory or not, but um, it, it has a symmetry that is called supersymmetry. It's a symmetry that relates uh, so-called particles that are called bosons and fermions. Um, and, um, and it has the maximal amount of this type of supersymmetries. So the maximal amount that the field theory can have, the quantum field theory can have. Um, and so such theories are very constrained. They are, they're sort of Lagrangian or the, the, the laws of physics for such theories are completely fixed in terms of some, the choice of uh, so-called gauge group, which is like some number of colors similar to what happens in chromodynamics. Um, uh, and then there is a coupling constant. Um, so that, um, that completely specifies the theory. Um, and uh, yeah, so it was a particularly simple case. And then later people found some other examples, well, in various dimensions. So even in the original paper, I had also examples in other dimensions. But this example is kind of the simplest in certain sense because of the many symmetries it has. Uh, and it's, it's one for which uh, a lot of calculations were done and there is a lot of um, precise uh, uh, precise relationship, well, many things were checked. Let me, let me just try to explain one of them. So um, according to this, so in, in, in theories that are like uh, chromodynamics um, that have a large number of so-called colors, um, the, the, the particles of these theories have uh, a color and an anti-color, and they can form chains where the color of one is correlated with the anti-color of the next and so on. So they form a kind of necklace uh, particles um, and um, they they behave th this these chains uh, behave a bit like they behave like strings in the bulk theory um, and um, th the same thing happens in ordinary chromodynamics and where they behave like strings in our four dimensional world um, but uh, in this case the strings are in this five dimensional 
anti deceiver space. And there were mathematical um, techniques that were developed in order to show that we can go from this change that you have at weak coupling in the boundary theory where each particle moves independently. And as you make the coupling constant stronger, the chains, uh, sort of the, the, the motion of these particles becomes more correlated and in such a way that it can be described by a string that lives in the five-dimensional or more precisely 10-dimensional uh, bulk space. Um, and and this is something you can that's been shown mathematically. So it's uh, I would say this is great evidence for this duality or for the correspondence between the two theories. Hmm. Well, there are a lot of things there that I want to ask more about, but the the first thing is just at the beginning of your response now, and please correct me here if I if I'm wrong. Uh, or just making little mistakes, but restricting ourselves to the five-dimensional five anti-desitter space for a moment. You said that string theory works best in 10 dimensions, and I believe that M-theory works best in 11 dimensions. And my understanding is that to for the vibrations of strings and various brains to produce the properties of the particles that we observe in the standard model. They require these extra compact six-dimensional um, kalabi yao shapes in which to move. And what I'm wondering is how, if the theory requires or theories uh, require 10 or 11 dimensions in these Calabi-Yau shapes, how the bulk theory can be, well, we don't need to get into the bulk theory yet, but how string theory can be emulated in the five-dimensional anti-desitter space. Um, okay, so I, I think I think string theory can be used in various ways. Um, when we're talking about trying to reproduce the standard model, that's uh, sort of one objective we might have uh, in order to, it's of course an interesting objective to try to understand the physics of our own real world. Um, Very good point. Yes. So now when we are talking about this ADS5 and this duality, this basic example of the duality, we are not trying to reproduce gravitational physics in four dimensions with our matter content. Um, we are content with having uh, gravitational physics in 10 dimensions in, on a space which is ADS5 times S5. So it's a 10-dimensional space-time. It's something we can understand uh, easily, well, relatively easily in string theory. Um, and uh, and that's the same as this theory in four dimensions, this other theory of particles in four dimensions. So before, for example, when I was describing the the way that strings emerge from the chain of uh, gluons. The, the gluons are these particles in, uh, in, in this version of chromodynam well, in chromodynamics. Um, when you have this chain of particles, the, the chain of particles lives in four dimensions, but the string that, that they describe lives in 10 dimensions. Um, so, yeah, um, that the fact that this 10, it's related to the particular set of particles that we have. We have gluons and then some other uh, fermions and scalar fields. Right. And 
when you say that reproducing the standard model is only one use of string theory, is this also an illusion and maybe implicit uh, reference to the multiverse and that some string theorists would like to be able to model all possible universes in a string theory? Um, yeah, that's right. So it might be that for understanding aspects of cosmology, we need to consider not, not just our own four-dimensional world, but many other possibilities. Um, here, the well, that's true, uh, but it's, again, orthogonal to the discussion. So this is one example of the duality, and it uses this particular universe. We could have other examples which use... Uh, you know, four-dimensional anti-deceiver instead of five-dimensional anti-deceiver. There are various things we could do, and people have uh, studied all these other possibilities. Uh, it's a large number of other possibilities. Um, we we don't understand the full set. I mean, we cannot give a complete list of, uh, of uh, anti-deceiver spaces uh, where the duality works. We think it should work for all of them, but uh, we don't have even a complete list of possibilities. Um, so I, I, I should perhaps say something uh, at this point, which uh, is, is related to string theory and a bit orthogonal of the, to, to the quantum gravity discussion. So I, I mentioned in the beginning of the interview that string theory originated as a theory of strong interactions. And, and uh, th this had its origin in the fact that uh, strings were observed in particle collisions. So strings are things that exist in nature, uh, and we they were observed in uh, particle collisions in, in colliders. And when experiments were done at higher energies, it was realized that these strings were somehow made out of the gluons, some other more elementary four-dimensional particles. Um, but but this shows that, um, first of all, that strings are real. There is a version of strings that exists. Second, it was realized that uh, these strings would be weakly interacting and more similar to the strings of uh, string theory if you took the number of colors to be very big. So uh, instead of three, very large. And already, perhaps, three is fairly large uh, for these purposes. Um, and so people had the question of uh, what kind of string theory describes these uh, strings that arise from four-dimensional gauge theories, right? And um, it wasn't clear that it was the same as the 10-dimensional string. It was something, there, is, there seemed to be a contradiction because this, the strings we understood are in 10 or more dimensions, and the these other strings seem to live in four dimensions. But it, it was realized by, by Polyakov that the, these strings really should be viewed as living in at least one more dimension. Um, and um, and the, this, this basic example of the dualities is, is a concrete realization of this idea that um, the strings of chromodynamics uh, live in one more dimension. This idea is five, or really 10 dimensions in this case, uh, live in more dimensions. And, and it's a concrete realization of this idea that um, the strings that are similar to the strings of strong interactions uh, are actually connected to the ordinary strings of, uh, that we were using for quantum gravity. So now we can, uh, we could say, well, let's forget about quantum gravity. We could say, well, if my interest is, uh, if you're a researcher just interested in four-dimensional theories, um, uh, 
but you are interested in understanding theories, for example, at strong coupling, then you can use this 10-dimensional description um, with ADS5 times S5 as a toy model for, for a strongly coupled uh, field theory. And, and it, it was used in this, in this way. Um, so from this point of view, you don't care that the interior is not the standard model or, and so on. What you, what you care in that case is that the boundary theory is somewhat similar to the standard model. You're not trying to, yeah, similar at least to the theory of strong interactions. I, I I know that this is orthogonal as you said, but it's it's really important and really interesting. And I was I was at first sur surprised to hear you say that strings were observed in colliders because, well, before I say because, but they're not the strings of string theory. They're the gluon necklaces you were referring to when we were talking about conformal field. Yes, theory. yes, but but the, the duality shows that they are not so different. Um, the duality. The duality may show that they're not so different, but my understanding is that the general physics community does not think that strings have been observed. The string theoretic strings have been observed. No, they don't. But uh, yeah, pr probably that's a true statement. Um, but uh, I think intellectually they are rather similar. And I think people have been trying to take the large n limit of quantum chronodynamics, so large n, and find uh, some strings there and see uh, how different or similar they are. So, th so the, the correct statement is that if you replace quantum chromodynamics by another theory that you add extra matter fields, then it becomes this uh, highly supersymmetric uh, version of quantum chromodynamics. And then for that version, the strings are really the strings of uh, string theory. So they are closely related. They, they are not completely unrelated. So yeah. So from a theoretical point of view, I could say, well, you know, the, the, and those strings are the, the strings of colliders are relativistic strings. They are, you know, similar to the strings of string theory. When you say relativistic strings, you're referring to the four dimensions. Yes. So okay. Why, why is why are the so let me let me try to explain the difference between. A violin string and the strings of string theory. Okay, uh, both are strings. Um, the 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 violin string has a very large mass per unit length compared to its tension. So if you so mc squared, well, or mc, so it's uh, much larger than the tension. And for that reason, the the waves that propagate along a violin string go at a speed less than the speed of light. So a relativistic string is one where the mass per unit length is essentially the same as the tension, up to factors of the speed of light and so on. And so then um, uh, for those strings, uh, a perturbation, for example, would move at the speed of light along the string. Um, and the ones that are observed in the collider are the same as the second one that I mentioned, and those are also the, the ones of string theory like that. There could be also something people call cosmic strings, which are, would also have this property. Um, they might arise not as um, they must arise as some kind of soliton in uh, quantum field theory. So um, there, there, yeah. So that that's what we'd call the relativistic string. The the strings of fundamental string theory, or maybe you should say weakly coupled string theory, the ones that are easy to understand are strings that interact little when they cross. So they can just cross without uh, reconnecting very easily. And my understanding is that 
cosmic strings can really grow to or have grown to cosmic proportions. And if I'm recalling correctly, um, Ed Witten has a very funny quote where he says something to the effect that how funny would it be to confirm string theory by looking through a, a telescope rather than something like the LHC? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So that that's a possibility. So it could be that um, that well, co cosmic strings uh, could be either made of other particles like solitons of field theory, or they could be also fundamental strings. Um, and I think it was referring to this fact that they could be fundamental strings, and they would have slightly different properties. So this fact that once when they crossed, uh, the probability of reconnection could be different. Uh, but well, so far cosmic strings have not been observed. Uh, but well, it's, it's one of the things people are looking for. And would be would be nice if the universe is kind enough to provide us with very big fundamental strings. It would be uh, really wonderful. Well, returning to the fr from our tangent to the main thread of our discussion, and one of the last things you said was that you chose to use the five-dimensional anti-de-sitter space for the correspondence because it was tame. Uh, the symmetries were neatly aligned between it and the conformal field theory, the boundary theory, and so on. But then this raises the question, if one of the goals is to explain our universe, what ensures the relevance of this result, or maybe not, ensures it's still a conjecture uh, but what leads you to believe that there is or there might be a corresponding correspondence between our potentially 11 dimensional bulk and the boundary right um well um i, I think the the idea would be that there would be a similar correspondence perhaps um uh, it's not clear where the boundary would be in our universe. So the the most natural boundary that our universe would have would be in the very far future that will expand. And in some sense, there is a boundary which is a three-dimensional um, Euclidean space. Um, and so maybe is there is the another... Is four-dimensional? Yeah, the universe is four-dimensional and in, it has a three-dimensional boundary uh, in the far future. Um so you can think of that as some surface that at some moment in time in the very far future. Um, so before before we were talking about the boundary as some pl mo place in space very far away, uh, in an expanding universe, we would say, well, some some spatial uh, region, some moment in time at very late times. And it could be that uh, our four-dimensional universe can be def defined in terms of certain statistical system in three dimensions, um, so field theory into three dimensions. Um, but we don't know any, well, we don't know any example that has a, you know, gravity, Einstein gravity dual, that there are examples that have uh, are related to weird theories of gravity, strange theories of gravity um, with, uh, with lots of massless uh, higher spin particles, where this seems to be true. Um, so yeah, so one would need to generalize the correspondence to to this case. This could be one way in, could, in, in which it could be generalized. Um, the other possibility is that there is some kind of quantum mechanical system that 
describes uh, our observations in all the way up to the cosmological horizon. Um, um, yeah, that's another possibility that people are thinking about. But we, we don't have uh, some examples. So in, in the ADS case, we, in some sense, we were lucky by this discovery of Polchinski of these objects called D-brains that acted as bridges between the field theory and the gravity theory. And we, we don't have similar objects that, or they are not known that could help us uh, in this cosmological situation. The first possibility you mentioned with the boundary being far in the future, this is, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around this, particularly because wouldn't the bulk, if we're, if we're still using this hologram metaphor, wouldn't the bulk have to be a projection into the past from the, for us to exist now, if there is no boundary now and the boundary is in the future, but the bulk is a projection from the future? Um, yeah, well, I mean, the, in general relativity, the universe, uh, you know, it, it continues to the future and uh, you, you could consider what will happen in the future. We, we somehow are at some point in, within that four-dimensional universe, we're at some point in time and we're... If you're taking like a block universe sort of picture. If you're taking sort of like a block universe sort of picture, everything uh, exists. Yeah, so it has this for the end. We, we are living in some kind of slice at some moment in time. Um, but um, yeah, so we would we would be some object in that boundary. So I, I don't want to talk too much about it because we don't have com concrete mm -hmm. examples. Sure, but sure. Th there isn't a completely obvious reason why it could could not be true. Uh, so, uh, but then maybe. We don't have to keep talking about this too much more, but just to wrap my head around it, just as there are... Let me make one, one little point about this, which is the fact that um, if such a description existed, uh, then we would have something well-defined in the future. And the, the fact that there is a, cos a singularity in the past or something like that, which just mean that uh, the bulk four-dimensional picture ceases to emerge somehow in the bulk there is still a well-defined description uh, in the infinite future for anything we could calculate at that point. I, I, I should mention that, um, yeah, it, it looks like this description is a little weird, but um, we, when we look at the very early universe, um, we are somehow looking at the projection of, we're looking at the similar uh, slice, if you wish, or similar um, moment in time. So the early universe, uh, that there were things that were happening in the very early universe that left it le left their imprints in the in the universe we observe today. So, uh, for example, when we say that the inflation predicted some fluctuations and imprinted some fluctuations, which we now see uh, through the cosmic microwave background, um, that that surface that we see in well that we see with fluctuations uh, far away. Um, it's a bit like uh, this, uh, well, the, the surface of the far future of the early universe. Um, so from the point of view of the early universe, that, that is in the far future. And by looking at, this, at the correlations, uh, the statistics of, uh, 
of fluctuations, whether it's up or down, and how they are distributed in space, uh, we can figure out what was happening in the very early universe. Um, so we can say, well, there were particles being created, or maybe there could be interactions between particles and so on. Um, so we can reconstruct, in, in principle, we can reconstruct the physics of that very early universe by looking at uh, this uh, sort of cosmological observables. Hmm. So when we look at a star uh, that's in the past, what we're seeing is part of, it might be thought of as uh, the surface of a rough, well, a rough sphere of photons whose surface is determined by the geodesics that those photons traveled. Right, right, right. Yeah, for the case of a star, the translation is a little more direct, but... Uh... Mm -hmm. oh, oh, very, very interesting. Um, but what I was going to ask before you added that point, and I'm sorry for, for harping on this since you've mentioned that we don't have a fully developed theory for this, but I was wondering if one way of making sense of this boundary being in the future, but projecting into the past is, I mean, we're familiar with non-local interactions in space from quantum mechanics through entanglement, for instance. It's not that much of a stretch to think that there could be non-local interactions through time in the case of the boundary and the boundary being in the future and the bulk not. Yeah, in, in, in quantum mechanics, we I wouldn't describe them as interactions. So we have uh, correlations which are non-local and sort of stronger than classical correlations. So that's, uh, that's entanglement. And yeah, so in the, in the ADS case, there is a, a radial direction, a space-like direction that is emergent from the boundary. Right? And the idea is that similarly in the future, there would be an emergent direction, which now will be time-like. Uh -huh would be time. Um, so, yeah, but we, we don't have very good ideas for how this would happen, or what, what properties, so that you would need perhaps some special properties about this statistical field theory um, to, to have a time emerge. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I should mention, you, you mentioned entanglement, and, and one of the, the themes of recent, uh, recent developments is uh, to, to highlight the importance of entanglement in the construction of space-time from the boundary theory. So you have, um, in the boundary theory, the vacuum is a highly entangled state, and the bulk reflects some properties of this entanglement. Mm -hmm. Right, Eric Verlin, I know, is working on emergent, I think it's emergent gravity that emerges from entanglement entropy. Yes, and th there is there is actually this been so, so we uh, we mentioned in the very beginning this formulas of Bekenstein for the entropy of black holes, and now we have a new formula that was originally developed by Ryun Takayanagi and then improved by various other people, um, that calculates another kind of entropy of a black hole. So, um, the the entropy that um, von Neumann discussed is, is an entropy that calculates the sort of quantum information available or contained within a system. So if you have a quantum system, um, sometimes it might be in a so-called mixed state, not in a pure state. And there's a quantity that uh, characterizes how mixed, uh, how many possible quantum states you have. And, um, and that is the von Neumann entropy. 
or sometimes called fine grain entropy. Now, this is in general different than the sort of Boltzmann entropy or thermodynamic entropy of a system, um, especially when you are in, out of equilibrium. So, and so for describing, um, for example, a collapsing black hole or situations like this, which are out of equilibrium, uh, you get the difference between these two entropies. And we have a sort of area formula for each of them. And uh, it's been quite useful to think about this direction. So in the same way that the, the Bekenstein formula told us many things about black holes, this other formula is also telling us interesting things about the black hole, and in particular about the black hole interior. Because the, the area is also, the formula also computes the entropy of some area, but it's not the area of the horizon, it's the area of some surface in the interior that you need to determine. Um, and uh, so it's telling you some information about the interior. Do these two conceptions conflict at all, or are they simpatico? No, they are they are compatible with each other. So it's just that uh, I mean, no, normally most uh, physicists uh, have heard only about they they know one definition of the entropy, and uh, that the, they normally this distinction between the two types of entropy is not. Well, it's definitely it's not relevant for a system in a thermal equilibrium, but uh, that has equilibrated over a very long time. But it, it is quite uh, relevant for systems that are out of equilibrium. Mm. Well, that's very interesting because then it's it's quite like the ADS CFT correspondence in that two descriptions of the same phenomena can be useful in different contexts. Um. Yeah. Well, this this is more more elementary, I would say. So even, you know, for, for simple systems, I mean, the, this idea of uh, thinking about the two entropies is something that people have discussed. They discuss a lot in the condensed matter physics literature and so on. Uh, but and, and it's important when you consider out of equilibrium situations. I, I know that you wanted to get away from this, but this is, I promise, the last question that I will ask about the boundary. And you can also totally decline to answer it because it opens up a huge can of worms. But I could conceivably understand a boundary far in the future. But at one point you said there might be a boundary infinitely far in the future. And that's difficult for me to wrap my mind around physically. Well, let's say infinitely means uh, very far. Okay. Yeah, there are no infinities in physics. It's always some very far. You know, <laughs> it's yeah, some idealization. It's always some idealization. It means that it's very far compared to other timescales that you are considering the problem. Okay, sure. No, that, that makes more sense because I always hear that whenever an infinity crops up in a physics equation, it means that something has gone wrong somewhere. Right. Right. No, this is not. This is just simply reflects an idealization. It means much larger than other things. Um, well, then, okay, moving on from, from considerations of the boundary, and please feel free to tell me if you're sick of talking about the ADS-CFT correspondence, and we can move to something else. But specifically, why is it so important for quantizing gravity, the fact that we can describe gravity with a conformal field theory. Um, 
it's important because uh, this, if you accept this duality, right, or this correspondence, uh, then it tells you what the answer is. So it tells you that if you were to quantize gravity, you should get something identical to this quantum field theory. So if you wish, it's, it's a bit uh, like an oracle. This is what you should get if you were to quantize gravity. Other people might think, well, this could be like the definition of gravity in, in ADS. Um, um, so it, it gives you a complete solution uh, of a theory of quantum gravity. And then you can explore its properties and try to learn some more general lessons. It's um, it's limited because it's limited to anti-sitter space. It's limited because the easy the easy elements of the dictionary are those that involve observations very far away. Um, um, yeah, one would like uh, something more. One would like to be able to answer what happens to an observer that approaches the black hole singularity, for example. And, questions of this kind. And um, it's possible that by understanding the dictionary more, we will be able, we will be able to answer those questions. So it, it, it gives us a kind of non-perturbative window into quantum gravity. So the, the traditional definition of string theory uh, was what we in physics call perturbative. So there's some coupling that is small, and then we compute corrections and corrections in that uh, coupling constant. Um, and so we could, in principle, compute to any order, but we get uh, some kind of approximate description. Um, the boundary theory gives you, in principle, an exact description. So, it and it it shows that if you, again, if you accept it, it shows you that quantum gravity. So in these situations, it's described by unitaries by respects the laws of quantum mechanics. Uh, at least for observers who measure things from far away, the laws of quantum mechanics are unmodified. So it answers some conceptual questions of this kind. And also, you, well, you, you will, as anything, you would like to extract as much information and lessons from it as you can. And, and people are busily trying to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and right. doing that. Yeah. You said that it evolves unitarily. And I hadn't realized before having some of these conversations, just how uh, fundamentally quantum mechanical string theory is. And I imagine that demonstrating <clears throat> its equivalence in, in this case, or intertranslatability from the five-dimensional anti-decitter space to the conformal field theory really buttresses this notion that it is uh, fundamentally quantum mechanical. Yes, yes. Yes, at least uh, for observers who are measuring things from far away, which, which are not subject to very strong quantum, quantum gravity fluctuations. You could still entertain the possibility that perhaps for observers who are falling into the interior of black holes, there is some modification of quantum mechanics that, that we cannot rule out. Might, might, might be possible. And I said that I, I and I, I think I, I've kept true to this, that I was going to dig into everything that you mentioned in your initial sort of summary of the issue. But now I want to dig into another word that you used, which was emergence with regard to space. And I was wondering if this result to you, because I'm sure that there are many different opinions, if it suggests anything about the nature of space and time and whether on the one hand, they form a background for physics, or on the other hand, they emerge from more fundamental physics. And one of the reasons that this 
question arises for me is that if we can sort of translate from one theory to another in different dimensions it and no one description is primitive they're just equivalent it might suggest that space and time are not determinate right right well let me let me try to answer this this question or address this question first assuming as little as possible so we we know from just the einstein theory that uh, as we go to shorter and shorter distances, the quantum effects become more important. Um, so space-time is somehow more fluctuating and so on as we go to shorter and shorter distances. There's some distance called the Planck scale at which the fluctuations become very big. The theory becomes very difficult to analyze. Um, now, in physics, we think that um, the fundamental description is determined at short distances. So at least in the standard quantum field theory, that's the case. So for example, for the theory of strong interactions, um, you know, the nucleons interact somewhat strongly with each other and so on, but you go to shorter distances, you have the gluons, and that's the basic description. So in gravity, you might naively think, okay, yeah, the description should be fixed at at least the Planck scale, and there, but there the gravity, space-time itself is very fluctuating. So that would suggest that they should be replaced by something else, that the correct theory should be formulated in terms of some other notion, and that space-time, at least the usual continuum space-time that appears in general relativity, might be some approximation. So that's something you could say without talking about string theory or holography or anything. And people were trying, for example, Regge tried to construct this, some kind of version of this by thinking about small triangles and so on. Um, so that, that's a very general point. So that's a reason for thinking that uh, space-time should emerge from some other description. And just to, to harper a little more on this point, to, to insist more on this point, um, for example, um, you can consider the history of the theory of weak interactions. So the, the weak interactions were described by something called the Fermi's theory of weak interactions. It was some theory. Um, and uh, in, in, in this theory, this theory had uh, a scale at which the theory predicted that it would fail. Um, instead, of, instead of a Planck scale, it was a scale of the order of TV. Um, so the scale is currently explored by the Large Hadron Collider. Um, and uh, so people in principle knew that the theory had to fail at that point and maybe replaced by something else. Uh, and indeed, it, it was replaced by something else uh, before you got to this point, which is the, the Weinberg-Salam model or the standard model, in which uh, there, there are new degrees of freedom, like the, uh, the W boson, so there are some other particles, there are new particles, W boson, Higgs bosons, and so on. Um, and then all those uh, particles at low energies, they reduce to the Fermi theory. So. You could say that in some sense, the Fermi theory emerges from the more complete uh, standard model um, that we, we now know. Um, so the, the gravity theory has properties, Einstein gravity has properties similar to that of the Fermi theory in, in the sense that the interactions grow at short distances. Again, so this is, uh, these are two very general, this, I, I try to explain this very general reason why we expect a, a slightly different description at, short distances, 
Um, one is just simply because the interactions become large. The second was a historical example of the, the theory of weak interactions. Um, now, um, in, in gravity, there is something more funny that's supposed to happen. So something weirder that's supposed to happen, which is that our, the techniques that we normally have for exploring short distances, we expect them to fail in gravity. So what are the techniques we have to explore short distances? It's basically colliding particles at very high energies. So the higher the energies, the, the closer these particles get and the shorter distances they are exploring. Um, but in gravity, once you start colliding uh, particle, elementary particles at the Planck scale, they can start forming black holes. And if you now increase the energy, you will not be exploring short distances. All that will happen will be that you will form a bigger black hole, so which are bigger. So, so we're not really exploring shorter distances. So somehow, in gravity, it looks like these shorter distances somehow do not exist in some way, um, or they don't exist in the same way that they exist in a, in a theory of ordinary particles. Um, so that's uh, some other indication that something stranger is happen happening with gravity. Again, here I haven't used uh, string theory or anything. It's just um, proper, these are just properties of Einstein gravity. Um, and in, 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 in holography, um, there is something else that is going on, which is that the fundamental description lives at the boundary, not, not in the interior. So indeed, in that, in that description, definitely space-time is immersion from, at least if you, if you think that the fundamental description is the boundary theory, then um, the interior space-time is certainly immersion. Um, so it's a concrete example of how space-time could emerge from some more fundamental description. The more fundamental could be the boundary theory, where that bulk space-time is not even there. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that that is a more concrete, perhaps, example of how this can happen. Oh, thank you. That was that was really helpful. Uh, just this is this is an, an important detail. But since black holes are so fascinating and people don't often talk about, and might be unfamiliar with microscopic black holes. Is the reason that they arise at these small distances and high energies that the contacting particles in these collisions become so close and uh, the compound that arises from them so dense that their gravitational force is sufficient to prevent photons even from escaping? Is that yes, absolutely yes. You're you're absolutely right. Yes, that, that's correct. So you're concentrating a large amount of energy in a small region. Um, that that's Whenever that happens, you can form a black hole. Um, now, the, in order to form a very tiny little black hole of order the Planck's mass, um, you need to, co to, to have a collision at exceedingly high energies of order the Planck scale. You need to concentrate a lot the matter. So, um, if you want, if, if you don't have, if you don't have very dense matter, like you have, you know, nuclear densities of matter and so on, which is pretty dense, but something achievable in a neutron star, then you need a very big black hole, very, very large amount of matter. And you can only in that way make uh, very big black holes for their kilometer in size, a few kilometers in size. Um, yeah, so that, that's the, 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 the low density of nuclear matter compared to the Planck scale is what explains why the black holes that exist in the universe are so big. Um, but 
in principle, as solutions of Einstein's equations, you could have black holes of any size. Um, and so people, you often speculate that perhaps some processes in the early universe might have resulted in microscopic black holes or black holes of smaller masses. Um, none of them have been observed yet, but uh, it's something that is reasonable to speculate about. And is this why, getting back to something you said much earlier in our conversation about D-brains, is this why certain D-brains resemble black holes because they are so dense and highly energetic? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you could say that. Okay, great. And then, well, finally moving on from from anti-Desitter space, does... Are there generalizations or similar correspondences between de Sitter spaces and conformal field theory? Yeah, so the de Sitter space is the, the question of the expanding universe. So right. our, our Which seems like it would be more relevant. <laughs> yeah, no, that, this is more relevant. I mean, the de Sitter, it would be much more interesting to have a de Sitter CFT correspondence than a, an ADS CFT correspondence. And I, um, I think everyone recognizes that, but the problem is we don't have an example. So normally people say, well, in research, you somehow have to compromise. So you might not solve the problem you really would like to solve. You solve another problem, a simpler problem, and you hope maybe at some point you'll be able to solve the problem you really want to solve. But yeah, so the problem we really want to solve, we're most interested in is the, the sitter case. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm... maybe you can say that we did we made a sign error, right? We solved the problem with negative cosmological constant. We should have solved the problem with positive cosmological constant. Hmm. <laughs> well, uh, we'll get to that in a moment because I don't think the cosmological constant has come up in our conversation yet. But I think I might have read that Andy Strominger. We didn't talk about it. I think I might have read that he conjectured or was writing about the possibility of a DSCFT correspondence. Yes, yes, yes. He, he wrote several papers about this, and, uh, and he actually came up with this example I mentioned with the weird theory of gravity to, together with other collaborators. Um, hmm. And, um, yeah. But we, yeah, so it might be that uh, it's just a weird theory we, we, we haven't found yet, and maybe in the not so distant future people might find the theory. How might this have cosmological or under implications for our understanding of cosmology that relate to the cosmological constant and the expansion of the universe? Um, well, um, if we understood, well, at least we would, if we understood that there is a possible description of the physics in terms of a bound of some theory in in three dimensions. Um, then we would uh, at least have perhaps a conceptual understanding of uh, what what happened in the very beginning. So where where the uh, the current theory fails, right? Where there was an initial singularity, um, the description in the boundary would not be singular, and would allow us to give a complete description. So that. Um, that's one conceptual point. Now, I think uh, perhaps your question is more like, is there something we, some experimental prediction we could make from this description? Now, 
since we since we don't have the description yet, we don't know how constrained it is. I mean, normally to make experimental predictions, you need your theory to be very constrained enough so that there are relations between possible observations. And we, we don't we, we don't have uh, that yet, so we, we don't have a, an example, so we can't. Uh, I think we can't answer your question. I think you also referred to the question of uh, whether we would be able to explain the cosmological constant. Now, um, well, in, in this type of descriptions, the cosmological constant is related to the number of fields you have in the boundary theory. Um, and uh, yeah, we would, we would need to have a huge number of fields of order 10 to the 120. I mean, this 10 to the 120 is just the ordinary number that is mentioned in the context of uh, the cosmological constant. Uh, and um, so it would come in in that number of fields. Now, why, why should we have that number of fields and not a smaller number of fields? Maybe we won't be able to explain, maybe we will. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, the one could say that there is a there is a version of the cosmological constant problem in ADS in ADSCFT or DSCFT, which is to explain um, why the universe is local, why we have local physics at, uh, red, at distances much smaller than the radius of either the sitter or anti-sitter space. So that is something that probably requires some special, perhaps it requires some special physics at the boundary, and so it's likely that that. There might be a translation between the bulk cosmological constant problem and some problem in the boundary theory. Hmm. Well, with at least some of the time re remaining to us, we I think we've now we've covered the basics of the ADS CFT correspondence, and you've answered my confusions about it that I wanted to get sorted out, but. Now, over the past 25 years since, I think it was about 25 years ago, almost exactly, that you conjectured the correspondence, how has it guided and impacted research in string theory? And that's a big question, but if there are any few directions. Well, maybe I should say a few, a few, few things. So there were... People, of course, uh, generalized and found other examples. I, I mentioned the mathematical formulas that prove well, or see this transmutation between change of gluons and strings. Um, so, all, and there are other developments in that direction of, in the, of getting more evidence and convincing ourselves that this works. Okay, uh, that was one direction. Another direction was. Um, using it to model other physical systems. So perhaps systems in condensed matter or nuclear physics. And this uh, had some impact in those systems, but it also has, has some impact in us in the sense that um, this conversation somehow led to questions uh, about, um, you know, helped, helped us understand the, the correspondence better. Uh, and also maybe ask questions we wouldn't have asked uh, otherwise. The most interesting question of this type is that in condensed matter physics, physics people sometimes were interested in understanding the the entropy of, of regions of the of, of some region of matter, of let's say some material, um, and this led to this Rutakanagi formula that I was telling you about, um, and this somehow, even though it came from um, sort of a condensed matter question, 
it uh, took a life of, of its own and became very important in our field, in the field of uh, understanding uh, holography in particular and this ADS-CFT duality. The, so there were ideas of uh, quantum information that came in and helped us uh, understand aspects of holography, uh, ideas of, for example, quantum error correction, some analogies between uh, quantum error correction and the, this holographic map or dictionary between the bulk and the boundary. Um, and uh, perhaps it, it culminated with, a, well, or one very big highlight was a, a couple of, three years ago, four years ago, um, a computation of uh, a new way of thinking about the entropy of Hawking radiation, where uh, you can show that the entropy of Hawking radiation does not increase, as uh, Hawking said, but it uh, it, after the black hole evaporates, it's something uh, very small. So it, 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 it's consistent. So it's consistent with unitarity, and it's a way of computing Hawking radiation using this uh, formula with the area, this von Neumann entropy formula, uh, which I referred to. Um, and yeah, so that was very interesting because it uh, gave a way to um, gave a result that is consistent with unitarity without using any duality, just purely from the gravity point of view. So this is an example where somehow the duality was um, was useful for discovering a property of gravity that could have been discovered, you know, years ago without, uh, in the end, uh, not making any reference to the duality at the very end. So, um, so somehow you can view the, the duality act as a kind of bridge or scaffolding that helped develop some of the concepts, but at the end you could just remove it and just make the statements purely in the theory of gravity, just using uh, using gravity. Um, and so that's, and, and this has happened with, with some other other examples, especially in this connection with condensed matter physics. Um, there there was uh, one that I like, but I don't know how much detail, but if, if you want me to go into detail, ask me. Yeah, please um, go into detail. Yeah. So um, it's been observed that black holes, uh, when you look at low energy uh, modes or long distance modes, it, they behave a bit like hydrodynamics. They, they, gov they are governed by the laws of hydrodynamics um, at, uh, let's say, low energies. And uh, in the correspondence, people then uh, looked at some black holes and they tried to match to hydrodynamics on the boundary, and it did not match. So it, uh, it did not work. Um, and but it was understood that the reason it wasn't working was because people in the questions of hydrodynamics, they were forgetting some terms that are important in theories that have uh, uh, anomalies. So anomalies are a type of funny realization of symmetries in, 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 in field theory, in quantum field theory. And um, then, then once you realize those terms could be there, you, they could be there, well, they, they are there in the case of the systems that are, are involved in the duality, but they could also be there in other, let's say, condensed matter systems that, uh, you know, have nothing to do with the duality or, or, or the examples of duality, of the gravitational holography. And uh, then, the, so this led to a focus on this type of uh, effects and uh, the new, you know, hydrodynamics associated to these effects. And... So if you are interested in just that, you, you don't need to know anything about the duality, but, but the duality was useful for discovering these effects. Uh, again, another situation where it acted as a kind of scaffolding that allowed us to discover, discover something, but then whatever you discovered was a general lesson. 
So this is the advantage of uh, having somehow a non-trivial, uh, you know, concrete model that you can study and, and uh, theoretically. Well, there it acted as a theoretically interesting toy model uh, where you could, you know, this, use it to discover new things. And then there were other examples like this. So I could go on with examples of this kind. Um, okay, so um, yeah, so that those are. Uh, well, I guess you asked me. You asked me to list a few ways in which it was uh, influencing current or, or influencing the research in string theory. So I mentioned the understanding the duality itself better. I mentioned the connections with quantum information and learning more about black holes. Lessons that then are even independent of the duality. Um, and I also mentioned the applications to condensed matter and lessons that were learned through through that. Mm -hmm. And I, I had been planning to ask whether or not the ADS-CFT correspondence related back to black holes. Since it emerged out of black holes, it just seemed right that it should relate back to it. So I'm glad that it did. <laughs> in a... It did, yeah, yeah. yeah. I would say these developments in the last few years were very centered on black holes. There were, yeah, there were other developments I, I mentioned briefly before that um, are, that there is a, a system inspired by condensed that arose from condensed matter uh, for condensed matter reasons that displays uh, also a form of holography and so a connection between it's a very simple quantum mechanical system that is related to extreme black holes so black holes um, similar to discharge black holes we started the discussion from and this led to a better understanding of the quantum mechanics of those black holes certain interesting and calculable quantum mechanical effects um, that thanks to this model were identified and understood. That, um, now, now of course, it could be understood even regardless of this model, but this is an example where, you know, having a concrete model helped uh, understand it, understand these effects. Hmm. And then I, the last thing that I'll ask about this line of research is we did touch briefly on the DSC, the DS CFT correspondence and how this line of research might shed light on expansion in the cosmological constant. Are there going forward any other big problems that haven't been answered yet that you think this line of research might contribute to? Like perhaps that initial problem that started the conversation like with explaining the big bang yeah if you if you ask me for a kind of roadmap of what uh, might happen in the future maybe i would say that perhaps we'll understand the interior of black holes and then after understanding the interior of black holes we might understand the beginning of the big bang or the, the initial singularity or whatever happened before inflation and so that that would be something but, but you know it's hard to make predictions especially about the <laughs> there is one topic we didn't discuss that i think is also interesting so i mentioned a little bit the connections with uh, quantum information but there is um, something interesting which is the fact that with the advent of quantum computers it might be possible to do quantum simulations of this uh, strongly interacting systems that describe uh, have a gravitational description and uh, this might be might lead us to new new insights about quantum gravity that we we 
might not get because, you know, we, we are limiting our research on quantum gravity. We are limited by the lack of experiments. Right. And um, these quantum simulations are a, are a form of experiment on a kind of synthetic uh, version of gravity. It's not really the four-dimensional gravity, but you, you could simulate the sort of systems that have gravitational, the gravitational description. And uh, we might perhaps learn some interesting questions, raise new questions we haven't asked before and uh, give us some insight. So we, I think that will become a new tool that, I mean, it's not in the very near future. It's something that might happen uh, hopefully before, I don't know, I don't, maybe in 20 years or something, we might, uh, this might become a reality. But well, That's very fascinating though. So the experiments on string theory are limited by the extraordinarily high energies that would be required, I understand, but you're saying that the advent of quantum computing would mean that we have sufficient computational power to simulate some of these things that we can't yeah, actually Yeah, to simulate it will help us understand the theory better. So to, it would be a new tool that we could use to understand the theory better. Well, the the absolute last thing, one curiosity that we briefly touched on that I'd be remiss not to ask you about, it's more high level, but since this has come up on so many episodes, is the relation of string theory to the multiverse and fine tuning. And fine tuning, I think, is one of those very big and natural questions that arise when you start thinking about physics more. And I'm wondering if you see, you're one of those physicists who thinks of the multiverse and string theory's relation to it as something that can help us make sense of fine tuning. Um, yeah, I think it's something that um, seems to make sense of the fine tuning in the sense of uh, providing, well, so, so the idea is that there are many possible four dimensional that there are many possible internal six-dimensional spaces or configurations, and there are many possible four-dimensional laws of physics. Um, and uh, uh, there are some fine-tunings that are necessary for perhaps our existence or for, for fixes to be as, as it is here. Um, and then uh, we could perhaps explain them by saying that, well, we've... Uh, if, if there were not possible, physics would be so radically different that maybe there might not, life might not be possible. Now, that's a long chain of uh, reasonings for trying to explain this fine-tuning, but at the very basic point um, is that by having many possibilities, you have uh, at least the possibility of accommodating our universe, that's a zero-order statement, uh, with its fine-tunings. Um, and uh, perhaps even explaining those that are very crucial for our existence. Um, um, I, I should say that this has a dark side. So I, I, let me just mention the dark side. The, the dark side is that if there are so many possibilities, it might be harder to make a prediction uh, in the sense that the, the, the connection between the fundamental theory and the physics of the four-dimensional world because of there are so many possibilities could be very complex. And now, um, hopefully, hopefully there will be a way to surmount the, this, this dark uh, side, but well, it's, uh, the, yeah, that's a feature, but it seems to be a feature of the theory that, that it contains many, many possible solutions. Um, so whether we like it or not, I mean, 
some people say, oh, I don't like uh, the fact that there are so many solutions. Well, that's what the theory is telling us. But so uh, we have to accept it. At least uh, from string theory, you have all these possibilities. You could say that even regardless of string theory, the fine tunings might be a little hint that there might be different possible four-dimensional physics. This is a this is a weaker argument, but uh, mm -hmm. I think that uh, something I heard a quote maybe was something to the effect that referring to this dark side is that what was meant to be a theory of everything has become a theory of anything, and that this is what leads to it's it loses all predictive power when it predicts everything yeah i mean that's that's a problem when you have many possible solutions right so of course uh, the string theory sort of quantum gravity lives at a very high scale right the, and there is no reason why there should be nothing happening between that high scales and the low energy scales that we experimentally access so it's just i mean no, no one told us that there had to be a desert. Uh, sometimes this is called the desert of not having anything between these two very range, big ranges of scales. Um, and uh, yeah, well, that, that might be life and it might be the way. Uh, yeah, we, we, we might have to be cleverer in, 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 in understanding the consequences of the theory um, to, to be able to predict perhaps Perhaps the 4D physics is not completely arbitrary. Maybe there are constraints that uh, you know should be obeyed, and uh, yeah, some you know maybe coupling constants cannot be arbitrarily weak, or so there are conjectures of this kind. But um, so far, none that is very directly that that is well both trustworthy and and experimentally accessible. Um, but yeah, this is definitely a direction people are trying to look into, so trying to understand general so pro general properties of quantum gravity independently of the particular realization of the particular four-dimensional physics, constraints on the four-dimensional physics that would come from, from quantum gravity. Well, Juan, thank you so much, one, uh, for your patience with my uh, beating on the ADS uh, CFT theory at my my somewhat naive questions but this has been such a pleasure I, I mentioned beforehand i was really i've really been looking forward to this for a long time so thank you so much for taking the time well, thank to you very to much your... you also i also enjoyed it a lot and thanks for all the wonderful questions and the wonderful discussion hold on if you haven't subscribed liked commented or reviewed that would be so helpful and if you haven't yet you could also follow me on twitter and instagram at robinson Erhard.